Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast, show number 47, where we interview Jim Wang from Wallet Hacks, the great uncle of personal finance blogging. Before all the different tools, I think budgeting is hard because you have to constantly write down transactions and then it's sort of a cognitive load and you're tired and you don't feel like doing it and then you fall off the wagon. Mm-hmm. You know, like anything else, maybe you need a break, but with the tools now, you it'll take care of it for you. Maybe you don't look at it every single day and you give yourself a break, but it's still powerful stuff just to maintain. It's time for a new American dream, one that doesn't involve working in a cubicle for 40 years, barely scraping by. Whether you're looking to get your financial house in order, invest the money you already have, or discover new paths for wealth creation, you're in the right place. This show is for anyone who has money or wants more. This is the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going, everybody? I'm Scott Trench. I'm here with my co-host, Miss Mindy Jensen. How are you doing today, Mindy? Scott, I'm having a really great day, and I'm so excited for this interview because I've known Jim Wang forever. Like you said, he is the great uncle of personal finance blogging, and he's just an all-around really interesting person and a super nice guy, very knowledgeable. And I feel like we say this every single week, this episode runs really long because he had so much great things to say. So many great things to say. So many great things to say. Yeah. And he has a great story as well, where he has really built a great business. He's a pioneer, not just in personal finance and understanding all that kind of stuff, but also in the entrepreneurial side of that. Uh, He built a personal finance site called Bargaineering, which he then, he calls it liquidated, sold at a big profit. So he was a very successful entrepreneur and has been you know, made a large, a large number of great decisions across his career and had a couple of big wins as well. I mean, he's going to share that story with us and then I'll go into some of the tips that he's collected, his top tips for helping you move towards a better financial future across his many years of blogging in the personal finance space. Yeah. One of these tips really, really, really was amazing. I mean, they're all great, but one I've never heard before and it makes perfect sense once you explain it, but it's, you know, it's like all of this finance stuff. If you don't think about it, you don't think about it. And then once, you know, somebody brings it up, you're like, oh my God, of course I should totally be doing that. So let's not give away the whole show though. Let's let him tell his story. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. 
Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. You ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. All right, Jib Wang, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. How's it going today? It's going great. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. I'm doing good. I shouldn't speak for Scott. Scott, how are you doing today? I think we're all doing fantastic. So why don't we go ahead and start right from the beginning? And Jim, can you tell us a little bit about your background with money and, and what that was like? Growing up, my parents were always pretty frugal because they were immigrants to the U.S. coming over from Taiwan. And my dad came over with a education visa and he came and then my mom was able to come a year later. And so we were always very frugal, saving our money because he wasn't earning a lot. But then also every few years, we wanted to go back to Taiwan to visit family. And so life was a a lot of frugality, doing trade-offs because we wanted to save up because flights back to Taiwan were even today, they're expensive. But back then, if you think about it, it's even more so. And so I just grew up in a very frugal family, even though we were probably middle class. My parents owned our, our home and we were living fairly comfortably. Uh, I think just psychologically, we just had to keep it frugal in order to go back to Taiwan and buy four tickets every three or four years. So what sort of work did your parents do? My dad was a civil engineer and my mom was... She took on jobs that were that they gave her the ability to take care of us after we came home from school. So I remember when we were really young, she was a nanny, like when I was an infant, she was a nanny and she was able to take me with her uh, whenever she was taking care of the other kids. And then as we got older, she worked in the lunchroom of my school. Her day was done earlier than we were done because obviously lunch ends before the end of the school day. And then she would be home by the time we were home. And so that's sort of what they did. My dad worked at Brookhaven National Labs his entire career, first in civil engineering. And then eventually when a lot of those jobs are sort of being phased out, he moved over to database administration and just did that until he retired a couple of years ago. So what did college look like for you? I went to Carnegie Mellon, uh, studied computer science. I was there for a few years. It was a fun experience. I mean, it's a kind of a nerdy school and, you know, we found ways, we still found ways to have fun. And actually, with a lot of people talking about side hustles today, like back then college, you have more time really than anything else. I mean, maybe the people who were smart studied more and worked harder in their classes. But I was <laughs> up side hustles, like finding things to resell on eBay and just different little things you could do to make make some extra like beer money or video game money or things like that. And my money journey just about that creativity and tapping into that probably started around college. Do you have any like specific big wins that you remember from those side hustles? Yeah, there was, this might sound a little weird, but before they outlawed the financial transactions supporting playing poker online, I actually (laughs) gambled a lot online. And by that, I mean, so I played poker a little bit and I realized I wasn't particularly good at that because I just didn't have the patience to wait for good hands. Like I knew what I was supposed to do and I would just get bored. 
But so alternatively, what we found out was that a lot of these like shady online gambling sites, what they would do is they would give you money if you deposited money and you just had to put into play like a multiple. And in the beginning, the multiple was like 4X. So you deposit 50 bucks, they give you 50 bucks. It's 100, you have to put 400 into play and then you can withdraw all the money after you put enough into play. And eventually I think smarter people over there realized the number of four times wasn't enough. And I kept doing that. We were making thousands of dollars. Eventually, the number became 20x. And at 20x, it was no longer profitable to run these these little uh, sort of hacks or whatever <laughs> side hustle games. And I was playing blackjack. I didn't, you didn't have to play optimally. Like I knew a little bit. I had like the little cards because you're playing on the computer. You're not at uh, you know the table. So you just had the little card that told you what to do. And your goal was to not lose money, right? You just, whatever you put in, as long as you lost less than what they gave you, then you'd come out ahead and you didn't need much. Like in college, if you got 50 bucks, like that's a huge windfall, but we were getting to the point. I remember this one time, it was just, this is horrible, but I put a thousand dollars on a hand of blackjack. My God. And I felt sick. It didn't feel like I had only put maybe 50 bucks, a hundred bucks into it. And it had just run up so much. I was like, ah, why not? I might've been drinking. I don't know. It was not a very responsible decision, but I did it. Oh, this is horrible. I'm never doing it again until the next time it happened again. And that's how I won. And I was like, I'm done. I'm never doing that again. And I, that time I stuck with it and I did, I mean, it was not responsible. It was just taking advantage of the system being inefficient and just sort of having fun and being in college. There were really no, I mean, it's not like I graduated without student loan debt. Like, Keeping the thousand would have been way smarter, and that's what I should have done. But you're in college and you make mistakes, and if that's the worst one I made, I, I feel like I made out pretty well. Well, so what was your financial position like coming out of college then? It was I had a good job working for Northrop Grumman in the defense industry, and so I graduated 2003. I was going to graduate 2002, and that with a computer science degree, you know, I'm thinking, oh, I'll be pretty good. But that's right after the dot com bubble burst. And so I stayed an extra year to do graduate school and then started working in the defense industry. It was a good job. It was a stable job. I moved to the DC area, you know, got a rented an apartment with a friend and I didn't have too much in savings. That's student loan debt, but like what, 3% at the time, it didn't seem, it was, I think it was $30,000 in debt, which 30,000 student loans is, it feels like a lot, but it's not compared to say even 10,000 in credit card debt. And so you know, I felt like my position was pretty strong and I just kind of tried to grow it from there. When did you kind of begin seriously pursuing the creation of wealth or accumulation of assets? Like when, when did that kind of happen in your career? What's interesting was, so I started my first personal finance blog around 2004, late 2004, 2005. And that started to earn a little bit of money. And that was the first time I got the sense that I wasn't forced to stay on a track for my career, for life in general. My parents were strict, but they were very open-minded and very much like you go to school, you get good grades, you go to a good college, you get good grades, you get a good job, you know, you live your life, support your family. That's sort of the mainline track. And I saw my parents do it and like, we had a very good life. We still have a very good life. And, you know, I thought this is the track that I'm on and I'm totally fine with it. Then I start working and I'm working in this very large organization. The defense industry is enormous, like billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of people. And I thought, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm fine. Then I start writing all you know, this little blog and my friends are like laughing at me, like, how's your little 
journal diary going. I'm like, yeah, no, it's, it's going great. Like I'm learning a lot. Like I started because I wanted to understand like, all right, so this 401k, well, IRAs, what am I supposed to do? And it started to earn money. I'm like, whoa, this is sort of like off schedule. So this is all extra money. So that extra money went towards paying down student loans and all that. I'm like, oh, this is great. Then I started making more. And I saw, I realized that the track that I was on was like the safe track. I was just walking on a safety net. Now, I, granted, it's it's maybe not the right perfect analogy for it. But I realized like I can do this life and it'll be a very good life, a very stable career, you know, provide for my family. Like it's good. But here's this other thing where as you're accumulating more income and assets and you start investing, it starts to grow far faster than what you can earn at a job by just adding more hours and whatnot. I realized like, like the track is fine, but there's this whole other thing that you could pursue if you have the support structure in place to do it. And so that's why I decided to go in that direction. And for the first few years, if anything went badly, I could have gone back, right? I'd gotten the right security clearances that are you know harder to get. And so I could go back and go do the job again, as long as I didn't get too far, far out of the industry. And I decided to go for it. So this other thing that you're pursuing, you're talking about financial independence and not having traditional employment anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Just like okay. the whole entrepreneurship route. And cause I know financial independence, there are you know, a bunch of different routes and entrepreneurship being one of them. I think I stumbled onto entrepreneurship and then discovered financial independence and the fact that you don't have to get all the things that they say you should get that marketing has taught you that you need to be happy. So how long were you working before you figured this out? It looks like you got your job in 2003. Did you go straight from college to Northrop Grumman? Yep. Okay. Yep. And then you started your blog in 04, 05. What was the name of that blog? Bargaineering. Bargaineering. That's right. For some reason, I'm thinking it's Wallet Hacks, but that's the new one. It's the new one. Yeah. Bargaineering doesn't exist anymore. Bargaineering.com. Yeah. Yep. Oh, well, it doesn't matter because it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. I'm sorry, Scott, were you going to say something? Oh, I was just going to ask if you started in 2004, 2005, when did you leave your job? I left Northrop to go work at Booz Allen about three years in. Because for a lot of jobs, to get a big bump, you either have to get promoted or you move to another company. So I did the move to the other company. And I worked at Booz Allen for about a year and a half before I decided I was going to do the bargaining the whole as, as my main gig. That was 2008. It's actually when we got married, too, which was convenient because that meant I could go on my wife's health insurance which is, you know, probably, you know, it's a big, big problem. It's a big headache to sort of overcome. Yep. Working for yourself. So what did that look yeah. like? What did that entrepreneurship, was the, was the site producing revenue at the time? Were you feeling comfortable with that? How, what were the financial circumstances that allowed you to move into full-time entrepreneurship besides the healthcare? So, you know, in your book, Scott, you wrote about the sort of the financial runway. I think that's the term they use. I, I had the same exact thought that this site was earning an income. It was building, it was essentially replacing income I would be earning to the future. And so I told myself if I had a number of years saved up of income, then I would just try this. And I bought, so this side income bought years of full-time work, except now instead of doing that side income stuff from seven to 11 at night, I could do it from the nine to five during the day when I'm the freshest and been able to think the best and be creative. So at the time, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was I had probably seven or eight years of runway that I built. Like I needed that much. And I remember talking to my dad. I was like, hey, dad, no, I'm thinking about quitting my job to go do this blogging thing full time. And my dad was like, are you sure? He said nothing. I was like, are you sure? And I was just like, I was until you asked me the simple, <laughs> are you sure question? I was like, oh, so this my plan was I bought myself a number of years. If it works out, 
that's great. If it doesn't work out, I can go back. Right? Nothing prevents me from going back in like a couple of years. If it looks like it's not going to work out or if it's just like a one time thing, because if you think about it back then, there weren't that many people earning a living entirely online and they certainly weren't talked about. They weren't in like the newspapers or whatever. And so he didn't really have a model to say, oh, well, that guy did it or that girl did it. So it's easy. It's not easy, but it's possible. Just sort of like a guess. And so, you know, it's worked out. How did the, uh, you know, you said it was 2008 when you made this transition, you got married and transitioned out. How did the market conditions affect this? Was Were you kind of riding high on years of gains that kind of helped support your financial runway? Or were you like, hey, this the market's actually going down right now and I'm still able to support it. It's still conservative for me to go do this. Yeah, so I wasn't, I didn't have a lot invested by okay. 2000 because I was saving it all. It was a lot of it was in cash because I thought I needed this as a runway. If, if it doesn't work out, then I need to get access to it. I don't want to put it into any sort of, I might've put it into some like one year CDs just as like a holding pattern. And so when the market actually went down, I started accumulating a lot because, you know, I have this pile of this uh, emergency fund or career emergency fund, whatever this pile of cash and the site was generating income. So if it's generating income, I need to find a place to put it. I started putting it into the market, which has turned out great mm-hmm. because I managed to accidentally buy on the low when you're not supposed, you're supposed to, you know, always constantly on schedule, dollar cost average, whatever. But by luck, because I was comfortable with the cash cushion, I could then contribute more from the cash flow of the business. It wasn't financial independence in the sense that I'd had a pile of you know retirement assets and I was drawing that down. It's like I had a little bit. I'd aggressively saved into a 401k at work, and that felt good enough because that was my retirement. And I didn't put more because I felt as if I was ahead of schedule. And if I'm ahead of schedule, then I don't need to be applying more. I can wait. You don't really lose much by waiting a couple of years to see. I felt like this was sort of a turning point in my life, this decision. And I wanted to give myself as much flexibility as possible. So if things went bad, I didn't have to liquidate anything. I could just draw on, on a cash reserve. So that's sort of how, that's what the picture looked like. Well, I, I just, I just like this kind of concept. And, you know, when I comment on it, that you saved up this money, behaved financially responsibly for a period of years out of college in your career uh, and accumulated a large amount of cash weren't necessarily investing that like aggressively in the market. You were building up a financial cushion for yourself. And that turns out, you know, not to ruin all the future story we're going to get into, but to give you a chance to take a chance and, and, you know, be an entrepreneur, make an investment that has the potential of exponentially greater returns than what you could get by investing passively or continuing that work, that, that story in the workforce. And I think a lot of people underestimate the power of having tons of cash saved up, even without other investments there, because it gives you those options, that flexibility. I think if you know what you're going to do for the next 20 years, then you want to invest that much. Like if you're following a track, if you need flexibility, it's kind of like buying a house. If you believe that you're going to be in an area for 20, 30 years and you want to set down roots, then yeah, maybe buying a house is for you. But if you're transient moving around every few years, then you should wait because there's no rush to do either thing. You just have to just, just make a decision on what you want to do. Yep. I mean, there's, too, there's so many people out there who are like big spreadsheet nerds who I'm going to like, here's my 20 year plan. I'm going to put this much in every year. This is going to be my annual, annual raise. I'm going to follow it to the T and that's great. That'll probably work, but you're locking yourself into a 20 year journey when you could, after five years, take a huge lump sum of cash and a little bit of passive income and go ahead and take a big shot and maybe accelerate that journey by a decade or more 
if you're able to get lucky and maybe have a little bit more fun doing it. So anyways, how, how did your entrepreneurship journey go with bargaining? Uh, it was, it was good. Just grew the site, kept growing it. Uh, the personal finance community, like everybody else was growing their sites. And it got to the point where I was able to liquidate in 2010 and it was good. I, I don't know if the large cash cushion is funny, like anything else, you don't know what the different factors are that mm-hmm. go into a particular success. And there are going to be so many, but having a cash, cut, it gives you, it's like insurance. It's like self-insuring yep. and you don't know how important it is until you need it. And, and I never needed it, but it also gave me that confidence to be able to push harder for what I wanted. Yeah. I just, I just kept growing it and being able to work on it full time was great because a lot of creativity happens when you have downtime and you can like walk around and think, and you're not trying to force yourself to find the solution. And in a business where it, the path forward isn't hundred percent clear, you need that creativity to find sort of the, the areas to go into. And I think going full time was extremely helpful and having the support, whether it's that cash cushion or, you know, family and friends, the ones that weren't making fun of me was good. What did your wife think of this? When you said, Hey, I want to quit my job. Was she like, mm, no. So I quit before she was my wife, technically. And then we got, oh. we actually, actually my last day was uh, the Friday before we got married. And uh, well, when we talked about it, so she had seen the site like grow and grow. And originally I'd said, oh, it'd be fun if this paid for one vacation a year. And this was before kids and the vacations were not particularly expensive. I was like, oh, it's just great if we just have a little extra money and we can play with and have fun and not have to be responsible with it. And we jokingly to this day, will say, oh, it'd be fun if this paid for one vacation a year. And now it would be like an absurd vacation, which is good. But, you know, it's just a funny phrase that we say she <laughs> she was supportive. I think she knew or she believed that I knew what I was doing. Like people just look and they're like, oh man, it's awesome. You knew exactly what you're doing. You just went out and you did it. And the reality is no one knows what they're doing. And after the fact, they try to, you know, frame a narrative that fits this like epic journey that she was along for the ride. She saw that it was doing well and that the income was there that to support and buy those years. And I told her the same thing that I told my parents. I said, it's gonna buy me seven years. We'll figure, I won't use all seven. If things go south and we get, you know, three, four years in, I'll, I'll find something else. But I feel like we've bought this cushion and it's time to take the shot. And like Scott said, if it, if it works out great, if it doesn't, you know, if it works out, you accelerate by 10 years. If it doesn't work out, I can go back and go on that same safe track and it'll be fine. Everybody happy. I'll still be a couple years ahead and I'll at least won't look back with regret. That's amazing. Okay. So it's time for my favorite quote. Uh, Joel from FI 180 was on our show, I think back on episode 11. And his quote is the first time he said it, I was like, Oh my God, that's brilliant. He said, what's the worst that can happen if I quit my job and go try this thing? The worst thing that can happen is that I'll have to go back to work. So my worst case scenario is everybody else's everyday life. I like how you added to it now with, you know, Oh, at least I tried. I'm not going to have regrets. And, you know, that's, I think that might be one thing that's missing from Joel's quote, but I I use that quote almost every single episode because it's so inspiring. What's the worst that can happen? It's not like somebody's going to come and shoot you because you didn't, you know, you didn't do it right. You didn't, you know, oh, you made a mistake and it didn't work out. Well, here you go. Go get another job. It's not that big a deal. I never really thought about the worst that could happen. I suppose that was, I was just thinking, what's the worst that could happen? I go back and get a job. I'll have to remember that quote. Yeah, it's a, it's fantastic. Joel from FI 180. I always feel 
like I need to attribute him. Um, I'm sure everybody listening has been hearing that and kind of sick of it. So you've been writing about finances kind of forever. You know, some people call J.D. Roth the godfather of blogging, but I would certainly say that you're at least the great uncle if J.D. Roth is going to be the godfather. <laughs> he's, just um, <laughs> he's not that much older than me, but just a little bit. <laughs> Jim said that, not me. <laughs> so let's look at some of the top tips you've learned about getting your finances in order that you've learned over the years of blogging. So in talking with a lot of people, getting emails, and there's always a lot of like angst and emotion tied into money. And people feeling like they don't have enough or they're not doing the right thing or whatever. And I always ask them, it sounds so simple, but are you budgeting? Like, are you just doing the simple task of recording everything you're spending? And you don't have to do it manually with tools like Mint and whoever. You can pull in all that data automatically. And then you know, I earn this much. I'm spending this much. I have this cushion. If they have those numbers and they're still anxious about it, then that's a totally different issue. But so many people don't know. All they see is they, they don't see their income going because they get, get it direct deposited. They aren't entirely sure what their take-home pay is, but what they see all the time are their bills because it gets mailed to them, it gets emailed to them. They're constantly paying them manually or maybe automatically, whatever it is, but they're getting notifications about their bills. They don't get about their income and that causes stress because all you see is you spending money. You pull out your credit card, you go into the store or whatever. And you don't know. And without that knowing, the emotion comes in because psychologically you're like, well, I must not be doing well if I'm spending all the time and I'm not earning. So just say, just budget. Set up something simple where you track and you get that knowledge. And from there, you can start making decisions on whether or not you need to cut your Netflix subscription or do any of the other things you're, you feel guilt about. Right? So many people, they make decisions without that data. And it's because so much of our life we make decisions without perfect information, right? You have to decide, oh, should I try to merge into this lane now or wait till that car that seems to be going fast goes by? Well, here's a case where you have data and it's telling you, if you want to save 20% of your income, you know what that number is, you know how much you're spending in other areas, what do you need to adjust a little bit here or there to get you to that 20%? And people just don't because it feels like a lot of work and it causes so much angst. And my number one thing is just, get data. I think it was what Peter Drucker, this is the management guru guy said, whatever gets measured gets managed. Like you need to do that. And so many people don't now with all the tools, like I can understand if you don't want to track down every penny, but now you should, everyone should be doing it. What's your favorite tool for, for doing that? So I think you should use whatever is simplest. I know a lot of people like mint because you can tie it all in. You can break up transactions. You can do all that. Personally, I use personal capital because it has an investing portion to it that I like a lot. And our finances are beyond the point where we need to track every transaction, but it has that. It doesn't have forecasting and planning. So if you want to do something like, so the first step is just to track all your expenses. The second one is to sort of adjust your budget so that let's say you're not saving enough and you want to make these changes. Things like you need a budget are good for you know establishing, I want to spend X in these different categories. I want it all to fit move it all in. I looked at every dollar the other day because Dave Ramsey is pretty popular and it's a, it's an easy tool to get into, but it doesn't, it's free if you don't uh, pull in transactions, if you want to do it manually, but then you have to pay. I think a lot of them you have to pay if you want to get the automated transactions with the exception of mint. 
So you said a minute ago, people think that it's going to be a lot of work and that's why they don't do it. Let's go from starting from zero. I've never tracked anything before and now I'm going to start tracking it. How much time do you estimate it would start, it would take to start up? And then how much time do you think it would take to just continue monitoring it once you're already set up? Let's use your favorite mint or I'm sorry, your personal capital. I mean, either one, they do, they do the same thing uh, in terms of tracking. If you're starting a budget, I would recommend mint first because it has better budgeting tools. You just go in and you link up your credit cards and it starts pulling it in automatically. Then you know your total spend. It's pretty smart about categorization, but sometimes you have to adjust that too and play with that. But I don't know how long, it, it kind of depends on how many credit cards you use and how many bank accounts you need to link up, but it can't take more than 15, 20 minutes. Yep, I use Mint personally. That's what, that's how I track my finances. And it's very easy. You just, you literally take your login, your, you know, your username and password for each of your credit cards and your bank accounts and any other investment things you want to put in. And then you're done. It just ports in all the transactions every month. And then you have to spend a little bit of time adjusting the, like what this expense here labeled, you know, my local liquor store is called Sportsman's. So it's not athletic gear in spite of me thinking <laughs> that. Uh, uh, you know, I have to adjust these, uh, these expenses to, to what they actually are. But then after that, it'll pick up pretty quick and you're, and you're good to go. And so it maybe takes five minutes a month to literally have every transaction categorized appropriately. And then I'm a huge nerd. So one thing that Mint doesn't do is it doesn't give me like a month by month breakdown of spending across all my categories over time. So I have to download that into an Excel spreadsheet and play around with it more. But that's that's more than most people. <laughs> <laughs> but like Mint is perfect for all this. It, it just aggregates all that data into one really convenient place. And I think it's just a fantastic starting point. And it's fast. Like Scott just explained, minutes. And you have data that you didn't have before, that you had trapped in your head in bits and pieces. Mm-hmm. And that you assign probably a lot of emotion if you feel that way about your spending. Yeah. One of the things that's powerful about this is like you, you see your spending and you can see what the lever in your financial model is, right? So you may not have that in your head. It may, it may be, hey, you know, I know I went to, to out to eat a few times this last month, but that ended up being $300, right? Oh, wow. I can cut that in half easily next month and come up with $150 more. That's a lever I can pull on my finances next month. And like, and you see it and you have it visually categorized, you know, it's a skill. It's, it's not a skill. It's, it's work to categorize that. And it's a little bit of a skill to present it in a way that you can make decisions easily from. But once you do that, man, it's so easy to see exactly what you need to do to make the next leap forward each month. And you can make dramatic progress within a month, month or two. So I've said this before, and I'm going to say it again. The first time that my husband and I started tracking our spending, I didn't even, they didn't even have mint. It was just a piece of paper that I left on the counter and I, I drew a little bit of lines, like what date, where I spent the money, how much I spent and a general category. And I was shocked to see that every single day I went to the grocery store because I went to the gym every day and on the way home, there was the grocery store there and, oh, I just need one thing. And one thing turns into six things. And that's not a big deal if you're going once, but that's a huge deal if you're going every single day. Six times seven is that's a lot of extra things that I didn't need just because I was stopping at the store every single day. And once I started, I read this book from Steve and Annette Economides, though, like we go grocery shopping once a month or something like that. And that just blew my mind. How can you go grocery shopping once a month? And they gave a whole big story about how they did it. And I mean, I'm thinking of like milk and fresh fruits and vegetables. And they said, yeah, we do have fresh fruits and vegetables, but I don't know what they did with milk. Maybe they froze it. I don't remember. It just, it's not important. You can still go to the grocery store for milk, but like they would eat bananas, go rotten first. And then oranges take a lot longer to go bad and carrots are good forever. And so they would 
like eat stuff based on when they were going to go bad. And they always had fresh fruits and vegetables. And I can't go a whole month without going to the grocery store, but I've gone, I go significantly less just by keeping track. And that, you know, those six things might be, let's say $20 and that's $20 every single day. So, you know, tracking really gives you a good idea of what you're doing. And I mean, I didn't even have to wait the entire month. The next week I was like, wow, I go every single day. Really? I wasn't even like considering that. Yeah. Especially if you write it down sort of manually on a piece of paper, I was doing it when I first started doing it, my friend sent me her, she called it a budget Bible and it was just spreadsheet. You just entered in the, the different, it was very basic every month. You just entered in all your, well, actually you entered in all the transactions and then had to do everything manually. It was not that much fun, but I was young. And so I had a lot of time and I wasn't spending a lot. It was going to work and then going home and then going to work. And then I realized how much I was spending going out to lunch and happy hours. I spent a lot on happy hours just after work, just going. Sportsman's. Sportsman's. <laughs> yeah. And you start adding it up and you're like, oh, you know, you go, you have a couple of beers, you're like, oh, 15 bucks. It's like, oh, it doesn't seem like a lot. And then you realize how many times you go. And then you're like, oh, Oh, that's not a good idea. I should probably, maybe I'll just cut one of them out. You slowly like adjust your habits and you're like, oh, let's go do something else. You can find other fun things to do. It's just easy. I have to work to say, Hey, you want to just go, go to the bar? I'm like, yeah, sure. Go hang out. But there are other fun things you could find, but writing it down, it's hugely important. I don't think enough people do that because they're so busy and whatnot, but just getting a pen and a piece of paper, it's huge. Yeah. It's just eye opening. And I always thought I was good with money. And I am good with money, but I'm also really good at spending it when I'm not paying attention to what I'm doing with it. Well, let's go ahead and move on to the next tip here. What's what's your second tip? So it's actually related. It ties into nicely with the writing things down. It's, I say keep like a time journal. So these are when you want to save money, the best way, if you want to not spend a ton of time, like you can brow bag your lunch, but you have to remember to do that every single day. And then you forget a couple of days and sort of fall off the wagon. You're spending a ton on all these fixed monthly costs, like the Netflix and the, the whatever, your gym and, and things like that, that maybe you're not using as often as you are. And so we still have cable. And I realized we were spending 12 bucks a month on a cable box for TV that we weren't even using. Like the kids would watch every so often, but they were just watching, you know, random cartoons. They weren't, they didn't need the cable box. But what I did was I started keeping a journal of what I actually watched and I, we watched a lot of Netflix, a lot of Amazon Prime movies and videos. We didn't watch that much regular TV. And so we cut out that cable box, replaced it with a Roku that the kids know how to use. The Roku's like, I don't know, 30 bucks. So within three months, it paid for itself. And just that simple act of writing down, now I can make decisions. It's data-driven. Now I can decide, all right, I only watch live TV really for sports and nothing else. I should be able to cut this like $100 a month bill and really, what am I giving up sports? How often do I watch sports? Well, if I look at this log, I can find out. The gym. Now, I go to the gym enough for it to be worth it, and our gym is cheap. But a lot of gyms, you can go a la carte. You pay like 10 bucks. I think our gyms, you can pay like 10 or 15 bucks to go whenever you want. And there are some gyms that are charging like 150 a month, and people are going not at all. If you write it down, it kind of hurts if you aren't going enough. But then you know. It's like, well, I could just pay a la carte, and then I don't have to be paying this monthly fixed fee all the time. And it happens with any bill you can think of. Every single gym owner right now is saying, shut up, Jim, shut up, Jim. Because that's how they make money is they know you're not going to come. You sign up in January for their ridiculously low price. Then it goes up because, you know, you get like the one month free and then they're billing you every single month for you not going. There's something like 
10% of all gym memberships are actually used and 90% of people never, ever use it. So if everybody were to go to the gym, there would be not enough space because literally they have all these people that never, ever, ever come. And what's funny is, so the, our local gyms run by the county and they have maybe four or five of them spread out across the county. One of them closed for renovations for like six months. All those people came here. First of all, the number of people in the gym didn't grow by that much. It didn't, it, it wasn't like suddenly there were hundreds of people. No, it went from like 40 to 80. It was miserable. You had 40 <laughs> people at that time. Cause you know, people, you got on a habit, right? You go on like your Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, or whatever it is. And so you see the same people. And then suddenly there's a whole batch at that time. And they're always like, way more athletic than you. And it's terrible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was, you know, you always have the handful of like, enormous guys yeah. that take like all of the 45s and they stack them all on. The problem is when there's only one or two, it's fine. But when there's four or five, suddenly it becomes a big problem. And it's not that much more, more and more people. It's just, you added like a handful of more people and now everyone's schedules off. Yeah. I totally have that problem. When it comes to financial guidance, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When Mindy and I want to upgrade our wallets, we turn to NerdWallet. Scott's right. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, Mindy and I were paying for vacations in cash, missing out on miles, and not even knowing what we're leaving on the table. But now we're flying through the skies for free, thanks to our new cards with more miles and upgrades than ever. So if you want more travel rewards, hotel upgrades, or airport lounge access, no matter where you go next, let NerdWallet help you make it happen with a killer travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval, and terms of each credit card issuer apply. Listen up, business owners. Here's some quick math. Fewer costs equals more profit. The problem? You're spending more than ever on operations, materials, deliveries, software, and more. So why not reduce your costs and headaches with NetSuite by Oracle? NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite lives in the cloud, which means you can reduce IT costs with no hardware required. Cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because now you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. It makes sense that over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Don't let rising costs sink your business's growth. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash bpmoney. That's netsuite.com slash bpmoney. NetSuite.com slash BP Money. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. 
the BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Two additional points about the time usage journal that I think are interesting to discuss is one, aside from just tracking what you need to spend money on, I think you can also, where your time is going, that's your other major resource that you're, that you can do to kind of move toward financial freedom, right? And sometimes it's a surprise to see how much time is wasted and not that you could be just redeploying in a different way that could either make you happy or be profitable, a profitable use of time versus time you're just like, eh, this is, that was a complete waste. I could have done something way better and would have felt better about it. And then second, I think you can see some things that may seem like large expenses that maybe aren't large expenses, like my computer, for example. I spend eight hours a day on this thing, maybe more sometimes. Even though it's my most expensive item I'll ever own, or at least expensive item of this size, you know, car, that's a pretty low dollar per hour item, I think. And I don't know if maybe maybe I had a conversation with you at one point about this that gave me that kind of way of looking at things. Is that something that you've kind of used this to analyze your purchases? Yeah, a lot of it is, you know, there are a lot of items that are high dollar that you use all the time, like shoes or like your mattress or whatever. Like if you spend a little bit more, it'll last hopefully a little longer and your experience will be a lot better. The interesting things, I had a conversation with, I was on the train going somewhere and I was talking with this guy and he was telling me about suits, like he made suits. And I asked him, because I still know very little about suits, I'm like, why are some you know Italian suits, whatever, so expensive? He's like, oh, the difference is the material. It's just more comfortable. And so if you're spending an eight hour day or a 10 hour day wearing the same thing, you want it to be a little more breathable. You want it to be a little more comfortable. And then also they last longer through dry cleaning. And so this suit that is thousands of dollars, it fits you better. It makes you look better. It gives you more confidence and all that, but it also will last longer. And so it's hard for, say, a young person to invest because if you need to get you know, three different suits, you're not going to be able to spend that much money. But as you get older and you can now put an investment, and this is sort of one of the other tips that I started thinking, talking about it, I call it like upgrade and save and being able to spend a little bit more now and make an investment because this thing's going to last longer and you don't have to replace it as often and things like that. Uh, I think what you were saying about the high dollar and just like you feel maybe guilty for spending that much. If you keep a journal or just even if you just more intentionally think about it, you won't have that guilt because you're like, oh, yeah, the computer is expensive. It is expensive. But... I'm getting this much value out of it. It's what my dad actually says is, I didn't use my first computer until I was a teenager, like much older. And it was a very old computer. It was like a, these numbers may not make sense to Scott, but Mindy will get it. When <laughs> Pentiums were out, my dad got me a 286. He got me a 286. And it had 80 this is all a foreign of- language to me. <laughs> <laughs> and it had 80 megs of, on, the, on the hard drive. 
And I had to uninstall programs to install other programs. So like in order to use WordPerfect, another word that Scott has never heard before, <laughs> I had to uninstall like Lotus Notes because that was the spreadsheet. Thing. So you had to do these juggling acts. But then my dad jokes around. I was like, yeah, but all you do today now is just play on the computer and you make a living <laughs> from it. So it was an expensive purchase, certainly, because it was thousands of dollars back then. But it was worth it because you look down the road and you're like, oh, well, it has resulted in this. I had the 286. My boss upgraded to the 386 and I was so jealous because she had the fast computer. I felt I would load programs and then walk away for like five minutes. <laughs> so no, no, but going back to your tips, though, like budgeting and time usage, like these are these are fundamentals of long term success. And, you know, I love the second point, maybe even more than the first with the time usage versus budgeting, I have actually personally kept a log of – this is this is how nerdy I am. I have kept a log of daily activity and broken out by not, – I'm not perfect. I don't have every day. But for the last four years, most days, the vast majority of them, I have a daily log that I've literally said, here's my accomplishments of the day. Here's what I set out to do. Here's what I did in the early morning, late morning early afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, late evening, every single day <laughs> for years. I just have them all stacked in my thing. And I think it's been really, really productive and helpful for me in budgeting my time and making sure that I'm not, I'm using it either towards something that I just enjoy or that is a profitable use of that time. Can you think of one thing that you've learned from that maybe recently or, or something that's hey, stand? Hey, we asked the questions here. I want to learn too. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one thing I've learned from that, um, whenever I shy away from that, I tend towards really like for me personally, like if I just don't have anything to do, if I take a, a vacation and don't do that, or it's a weekend and I don't do it, I will just binge on something unproductive the entire day, like video games, or sometimes it's nice. Like I'll read a book or whatever, but I'll always come out of a period without refocusing myself, feeling like I didn't work out, ate unhealthy, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's for me, I need to structure and coach myself in order to get things going along. It's like a time cheat day. Yeah. So you, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, before all the different tools, I think budgeting is hard because you have to constantly write down transactions and then it's sort of a cognitive load and you're tired and you don't feel like doing it. And then you fall off the wagon, mm -hmm. you know, like anything else, maybe you need a break, but with the tools now you, it'll take care of it for you. Maybe you don't look at it every single day and you give yourself a break, but it's still powerful stuff just to maintain. Yeah. When you're getting into the habit, I wouldn't recommend taking a day off. Cause it's so easy to just like not do it the next day either. But this time usage journal, I think is brilliant. I have never heard this before. And I read a boatload of blogs and, you know, I'm kind of in this space. Um, but that's really, really brilliant because I'm not using my gym membership either. Although I just signed up for a half marathon. So I guess I'm going to be doing that and it's getting cold. So I'm going to have to run inside. Uh, are you laughing at me, Scott? Uh, no, I, yeah, it's a little bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did not get my current body by working out. I will fully admit that I'm okay with that. But yeah, the, if I had kept a time use journal, I would have totally gotten rid of the, the gym membership. Uh, before we move on, do you have any tips for which journals or how to actually practically go about starting a time use journal? Like, do you have a product that someone can use if you're listening to the show and why don't you start doing that? So there's the two things. If you want to track like what you're doing, for a while, I was doing that just to see like what my day looked like because people always ask like, oh, what's your day look like? What have you done? And I would not know. I just go into Excel and just put rows for each hour and then just scribble in something. And that was it. That's all I did. I didn't use any products. But actually, one thing you're talking about you're goofing around on the computer, if you put is rescue time still still around a tool for like track 
it basically, so you know, the iPhone, the new iPhone will tell you where, what you're doing. I forget what the name of the, the feature is. You can turn it on and it'll like tell you how much time you're spending. Yeah. It's like how many hours you're spending on social media and on your phone, but there are similar tools for the computer and then they'll tell you which websites you're going to and they categorize them based on whether they're leisure social news etc uh you can do that to just track and just figure out how many times you you've checked gmail unnecessarily during the day <laughs> uh for the usage journal i just keep a sheet of paper it was just like a little like throwaway notebook so for the tv it was just on like the table next to the remote and then i would just write i'll just put a little tick every time i used it and i realized i didn't use it at all and just near whatever you, the gym, like you, you know, when you go to, if you just think back, everyone knows. But I think that the act of writing it down and recording it will give you the sense like, Hey, you know, you're spending a hundred bucks or whatever it is. And you're going like twice, but then start thinking about, so from here, if you want to adjust your, this may be getting a little off topic, but like, let's say you want to go more, like you have to think about what are the roadblocks that you've now created for yourself. So you talked about not liking running. I didn't like, I could not run because now I know this, I was just running too fast. And so I was just getting exhausted. <laughs> and I was just like, Not my problem. I, I run better now. And part of the reason was I didn't like running because one, I didn't know what I needed to wear. And so now based on the temperatures, I have a little sheet that's just a little piece of paper that says anything above 60 degrees, I could just put on shorts and whatever. When it dropped down between 50 and whatever, I would just bring like a long, long sleeve shirt. If it was under whatever I needed to put, get gloves to cover my fingers. And that was, I need to put like a little beanie on and whatever. And I was always running in like my neighborhood. So if I want to take something off, I could just throw it somewhere and I loop back and just pick it up on the way home. And I put that next to the clothes and they're all in bins in our little like foyer area. And it just made everything simple. So I didn't have the excuse of like, oh, now I got to go find, where did I put that shirt? I've like 20 shirts all in this little bin, 20 shorts, like gloves, everything, make it as simple as possible. And then you'll, you'll go more, find the things that are roadblocking you. Oh, that's a good tip. There is, I'm going to get you the name. I forget the name of the guy. He's, he's in Stanford. It's about, he talks about creating habits, but like there's the thing called the motivational wave. When you signed up for that race, your motivation was really high. (laughs) As time goes on, your motivation is going to diminish, diminish, diminish. And so it becomes harder to overcome those roadblocks. And so what happens is when your motivation is the highest, make the rest of the actions as simple as possible. So I, at that time, I wrote down the temperatures, what to wear, put it all in an area. So if I wanted to run, I just got up, take a shirt from this bin, shorts from this bin, if I need gloves, whatever from this bin, and then I'm out the door. And like months later, I'm just like, ah, I don't feel like running. Of course, you do have to walk through the house in your underwear to get to that point. It's right outside our bedroom. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I I love it. If you are listening to this and want a time journal and those kinds of things, a couple of places to start is one, Excel spreadsheet, two, piece of paper, three, make yourself a Word document. That's what I do. I just have a Word document I created for myself. That's like, here's what I want to do today. Here's the time zones I'm chunking out. And here's how I'm going to track my progress with, I handwrite it with a pen and pencil. And then, uh, Two, if you want to pay for some resources, two that might be good to check out would be uh, the 12-week year. Uh, I forget who that's by, but that's got a good breakdown so you can hit quarterly goals. And then uh, I also have used in the past a book called Living Your Best Year Ever by Darren Hardy, which might be a good resource as well if you're looking to start budgeting your time in pursuit of your goals and all that kind of stuff. And is the 12-week year an app or is that a book or a journal or what is that, Scott? It's a book. 
Okay. And we'll have links to all of this in the show notes. Scott, do you want to share your Word document in the show notes as well so people can download that and use that so they don't have to start from scratch? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just a little piece of paper that I have like a couple of goals and all that. But yeah, I can share that for sure. Maybe that's a roadblock for somebody to not get started is that they don't have the document. So you're helping them out. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I'm fully aware that my motivation is going to wane. I am writing about it on my blog and I am going with a friend and my daughter wants to do it too. So Sure. It's going to be awesome. Um, I keep track of my own work hours just for my own self. So I know that I'm getting in 40 hours a week every week. And I keep track of that on myhours.com. And it's a free app if it's just you. And I think if you want your whole company to sign up, it costs money, but it's just me. So that's another way to keep tracking. Just hit start when you're doing something and stop when you're done. And uh, it's another great way to not have to write it down by hand, especially if you're on the computer. Okay. So I think we've covered this one. I really, I've never heard keep a time journal before, but that's, that's just fantastic. That's the best tip you've ever said in your whole life, Jim. So top that. What's the next one? Oh, tip number uh, three. I I think we're done. We're We're done. done. We're We're done. done. That's the end of the show. (laughs) So this is less about data driven and more just about being smart with your time and how you're trying to save money. And it's any fixed contract that you have with anybody is negotiable. So any subscription, any service, anything, and you should be aggressively negotiating them down as much as possible because chances are you don't need it as much as they need you as a customer. So like we recently bought, not recently, I guess now it's been five or six years, we bought a new car and it comes with Sirius XM radio and you get it free for, I don't even know how long. And afterwards, if you want to subscribe, it's like $30 a month or something like that, which doesn't sound all that expensive. Until you realize if you don't subscribe, they will ask you, do you want it for five months for $25? All you have to do is you have to cancel because once it renews, it'll go up to the $30 or $40 a month. You just have to cancel and then pay again. It's 25 bucks for five months over and over and over again. And like anything else, it, they have no marginal cost to deliver the product to you. You already have the receiver in your car as part of your radio. And you're being subsidized by all the people that are paying 30, 40, whatever month however much they're paying. And the phone call doesn't take that long because the customer service reps are used to it. Anytime you cancel, you go to the retention department, retention, they want to retain you and they will give you a deal. And if you don't like the deal, just cancel it. Like you don't need cable TV. You don't need internet. You don't need Sirius. You don't need some of the ones you can't really negotiate are like your Netflix or your, you know, those services where there's just no one to call and then they don't really care all that much. But yeah, to cancel and try to re- get them to retain you. This this seems like a good tip to implement after you've done the exercise earlier and budgeted your time and know exactly how much benefit, if you have an ability to quantify how much benefit you're getting from these services beforehand. Yeah, like we weren't using Sirius. Like we don't have it now. Even if it were $5 a month, we don't get Sirius in the car because we don't listen to it. Most of the time we're listening to like these little kids science podcasts that the kids <laughs> like to listen to. And so like podcasts, well, you just download them at home or even just when you're out and they just listen to that and they're far happier. They don't need 90s on nine or 80s on eight or 20s on two. I had Sirius for or XM for a while and it was 80s on eight and I loved it very much. Heidi Selexa. I don't think she's still there. So I was listening to Clark Howard and this guy called up and said, you know, you always say negotiate or shop around or whatever. And he said, I got a renewal notice from my car insurance and it had gone up to 
like $400 or whatever. So I called them up and I said, this is ridiculous. It was not this expensive before I'm going to go someplace else. And they dropped his insurance price by 40% just because he threatened to leave to which I say, well, if they're going to raise you every month, go find somebody else who's cheaper anyway. But yeah. How many times does your insurance go up? And it doesn't go up dramatically. Uh, in this case, they raised it too much for this guy to be happy with it. But, you know, your insurance, oh, it was 600 last year and this year it's, you know, 610. Oh, OK, whatever. I don't want to shop around. Shop around because maybe it's not that expensive. Kind of on the same lines as this comparison shop is specifically for insurance. Look at your deductible. My deductible when I was young and had no money was what is the lowest, like $250 a month or something like that. And now I can comfortably except like a $2,000 deductible. So I have that. And now my insurance is like nothing. I think on one car, it's like $60 a year or something like that because it's a low mileage vehicle and on and on and on. But there's a lot of different ways to get your, your costs down. If you can accept a blow like that as well. You can ask the, the uh, insurance agent, are there discounts that I can get that I don't already get? And what do I need to do to get them? I remember talking with someone at Geico and they, they, so they have this thing where if you are part of an affiliated organization, they'll give you 7% off, I think it was. And one of the organizations that you could join was the National Military Families Association, which you don't have to be in a military family. You just join the organization, you pay the $40 annual fee at the time. That's what it was at the time. And I got 7% off my Geico insurance. Hmm. Which is more than $40. Yeah. yeah. Which is the 7% was more than the $40. Well, you get that for the as long as you're a Geico, so you don't have to remain a member of the national, the NMFA to get it. But that organization got $40 that it wouldn't have otherwise gotten to support its mission. And then I get a discount. So everybody wins. Love it. Everybody wins. I, I am about a- it because the Geico rep told me, he's like, oh, just look at this list of affiliated organizations. Are you in any of them? I was like, oh, I'm not yet. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go look at all those organizations. Yeah. So a few minutes of your time and you saved, uh, what's their thing? 15 minutes can save you 15% or more on Geico. I'm a Berkshire Hathaway stockholder and they are a member of the Berkshire Hathaway family. So I get that discount. Well, so what are some of the biggest contracts that you think that like your normal person, you're listening to the show, haven't reviewed your finances in a couple of months. What are some of these ones that you probably think stand out as like a checklist to kind of go after? Cell phone. Cable and internet, insurance. I think people know their fixed costs each year. You can negotiate rent. You can negotiate any of these things. It doesn't hurt to ask and you should just give it a shot. Well, yeah, what's the worst that they can say? No, Mm -hmm. and they're not going to shoot you. I mean, think about rent. Most people don't even consider the fact that they can negotiate rent. And if you're renting from a private individual and you want to say, and I've maybe people do know because this is the bigger pockets money podcast. (laughs) But it's like, they don't, turnover is a big pain. And so if someone says, oh, can I get a break on the rent? If I sign a two-year lease, a three-year lease, maybe three years is a little too long, but like maybe they can knock a little off the rent. If you can say, oh, I can pay this way or that way or sooner or faster. You can always, there are different levers. And if you have a little bit of creativity, you can try to find it. And it never hurts to ask, is there anything I can do to make this cheaper? Like I did with the insurance agent, which I didn't even think about. Yeah. I love it. So what's your next, what's your next tip after that? So what had happened was I'd heard all these things about like the latte factor and brown bagging your lunch. And it sounded, th- those are all great ways to save money, but they don't get to the fact like it doesn't make your life too much easier. And so the, the thought that I had, and this is what I actually did 
was I call it upgrade and save. It's like making an investment early on to make your life a little easier and then potentially save money in the process. And it, it goes back to kind of like with the running, it's like you have the motivation wave, you want to brown bag your lunch, you want to stop buying coffee. What can you do? Maybe that means investing in a Keurig and having coffee that's like instantly available when you wake up as opposed to a drip coffee maker, which is the most economical way to do it. But you have to remember to fill it with water, get make sure you have enough coffee grounds, make sure you have the filter and program it because it doesn't, it's not ready in 30 seconds. It's ready in like a minute and a half. And what when I, I, sounds absurd. These are all the little hurdles that get in the way. So what happened was we tried like an espresso machine somewhere and Nespresso is they're just pods and each pod is like 40 or 50 cents, but they make great espresso coffee in what feels like literally like 30 to 40 seconds. And there's no preparation. If, if what you need is that like caffeine in the morning and you just to get going and to skip the line at Starbucks, get one of those machines that costs money. I think it costs brand new. They're, they're actually really cheap now. It's like $80, which is not, you know, zero. It's not as cheap as a, a drip coffee maker, but it's ready. And you will never have the excuse of like, oh, I forgot to program it. I'm just going to go stop by Starbucks instead of like fumbling and figuring out how much water do I need for the whatever scoops of coffee. And it sounds silly, but if you make a lot of these investments up front, like if, if going to the gym is a pain because you don't have like the right shirts or you don't know, just buy a couple of shirts, buy a couple of shirts, buy more than you need, throw them in so that you're never thinking, oh, I want to go right now, but I can't because the clothes that I would normally wear are in the wash. It'll save you money. It's counterintuitive because you have to spend a little bit more up front. But if you do the math with just coffee alone, it's really easy. Like you say, it costs hundreds of dollars to get coffee every day. You're not going to save all of it, but you don't need to save all of it. You just need to save a little bit of it so that you have more than you did when you started and you get probably better coffee. I will say a great tip on this kind of stuff is to join one of the like social groups around the FI community. Like, uh, I don't know. They're like, I'm in a couple that I'm in the choose FI Facebook group. I'm in the mustachians in practice Facebook group and a couple other. And like, when you post like, what are these types of decisions there? For whatever reason, people love to give you their advice on how to make the best long-term decision around these somewhat, they seem almost like petty decisions, like which kind of coffee maker to get, which kind of mattress to get. But like you will get a huge amount of crowdsourced feedback to help you upgrade and save if you just kind of post this to the right social media group or site or forum or or what, anything like that. Quick tip there. Yeah. You know, you said something to me, Scott, once that really kind of changed the way that I look at a lot of things. You said, make trivial decisions quickly. It's one of your leadership styles. If it's not going to make a big difference, if it's not like time-wise, money-wise, whatever, do it and move on. Don't waste a lot of time on this stuff. And I think that something like uh, Steve Jobs did that. I don't want to choose what I have to wear. So I have a thousand pairs of jeans and a thousand black turtlenecks and that's all I wear and I never have to worry about it but make trivial decisions quickly. This is a fairly trivial decision. I like this espresso and I want an easy one. So I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to spend 80 bucks and now my life is better. Yeah. Well, well, I think I almost would disagree. I would say that these are like the important decisions, right? Like this, like which espresso, an espresso machine Jim has is a really important decision for him, right? Like that's impacting your, your overall day. And so you made a very thoughtful choice about like which one to get there so that every day can be trivial after that, Right. Is that, is that kind of where you're getting at with this? Okay. That's yeah. yeah, That's a better, every day can be trivial after that. Now I got to go find an espresso machine and convince my husband to let me have $80 to buy it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. 
And Jim, you have a whole article on this, right? Yeah. This upgraded save strategy. So we That's will include and and things because coffee is like it's just a very hot. I don't know if it's really in real life as much as it is. It's sort of the what people write about being a <laughs> topic, but it's something that's very easy to understand and easier to math out or calculate out the math and, yeah. and sort of the savings. Like it's harder to do something that's more qualitative in nature, like say spending a few thousand dollars on an Italian suit or something like that. But it has other examples of things you can buy for life and things of that nature. Uh, that's a, that's something that uh, Mr. Pop, Mr. Planting Our Pennies told yeah. me about it, the Biffle, the buy it for life. And he showed me this pair of shoes that he has. He was a salesperson, so he needed to dress up and look nice. And he has a pair of shoes. He's like, yeah, they were $400. And I'm thinking to myself, I don't think I've ever spent $400 on a pair of shoes, but he wears them all the time. He wears them every single day. Every time I see him, I, I think he bought them like two years ago and they look beautiful. They always look brand new. And that's not something that I think a lot of people in this space think about when they see, oh my God, $400, I would never spend that much on shoes. Well, hey, now he never has to buy another pair of shoes. Like every once in a while, he'll have to get those resold. We will link to your article, the upgrade and save strategy on wallethacks.com in the show notes for the show, which can be found at biggerpockets.com slash money show 47. No, no, I think, I think it goes back to the point you're making up earlier though, where just say, Hey, like that pair of shoes is an important decision. That's like something he had to put a lot of time and energy and thought into You got a beautiful pair of shoes and now he doesn't have to make that decision ever again. Yes. And that's what you're talking about here with upgrade and save is make this quality decision. Cause it's going to be something you're going to use a lot every day. It's going to have a huge impact in your day-to-day life, but once it's done and it's quality, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Yes. You so now that decision is trivial. To, he doesn't even have to think about shoes. Yep. Yeah. You just yeah. get, I'm putting these on every day. And they go with everything. They're beautiful. What's funny is I either say you spend a lot on something or you spend as little as possible. So like with like shoes, my shoes are either, and mine are not 400. They're either nice, like 150 or they're not that nice. And they're like 30 bucks. And I got them on sale, like sneakers. Like I beat up sneakers all the time and you don't want to spend a lot because they're going to get like muddy and dirty and ripped and, and it'll be fine. But I don't want to spend like the, I'm going to spend a hundred dollars on a pair of sneakers because that's like in the middle and I could like rip them on something in like a week and get upset. Oh, see, no, I do spend a hundred dollars on sneakers. I buy last year's model on Amazon. Um, but I do spend a lot because when I run and I don't have good sneakers on it hurts my, I get shin splints or something. Mm. So that's a, that's a functional issue and not, yeah, yeah, you don't want to buy shoes that'll make your feet hurt, but you know, if there were $30 shoes that, functionally perform the same. They just didn't last as long. For me personally, I would go for those instead of just, you know, a hundred that may last a little bit longer. All right. So let's move on to the last tip here. What's your, what's your fifth and final tip here? The fifth and final tip is sometimes you need to do things ahead of when you need them. And we're trying to think of, you know, as a big money win, a lot of folks, they only ever think about looking at say their credit when they think I'm going to need my credit, like with a loan or anything like that's something you should be doing on a regular basis, kind of like budgeting. Like you're not thinking, Oh, I'm going to retire now. How much should I save? It's like, by then it's probably a little too late. And the reason why I thought about this is because when I was younger, I wasn't really paying attention to my credit. I'd gotten a credit card in college by signing up and getting like a Frisbee or a t-shirt or something stupid. So I was like, (laughs) Oh, fine. I have a credit. I wasn't thinking about buying a house. I wasn't doing anything. And what happened was I was getting a background check for a security clearance and they go and they naturally pull your credit to find out if you're a financial risk and you can get bribes or whatever for state secrets. I had no state secrets, but I did have 
they had somehow listed a cell phone in the wrong address because Jim Wang is a fairly common name. So they had that and they had my social security number wrong. So the credit file had two social security numbers and one of them was obviously not mine. And that's what was associated with the, with the bill, the cell phone bill and the address. And so I'd submitted, you know, where I lived, everything for the security thing. And they come back and go, Mr. Wang. And this guy was like trying to catch me in a lie. And I had no idea. I was like the perfect liar because I had no idea. And he's like, have you ever lived in Harrisburg, PA? And I went to school in Pittsburgh. I was like, no, I've never, I've never lived in Harrisburg. He's like, what is this? I'm like, I've also never had a cell phone with whatever company it was. And I had to go and fix it while they're trying to do the security clearance check. And it was the most stressful thing because unlike a loan for like a car, like you don't get the loan for the car. That's fine. You wait a little bit. So they fix it. This was like job related and I can't do anything until the clearance goes through. And so that was all stressed out. And so, you know, eventually maybe not everyone's going to get a background check, but eventually everyone's going to get a loan for something. You need to be on top of all this background stuff, all the credit, making sure that one, it's correct. And two, if you're taking the right steps to improve it, because all that stuff takes a long time. But if you can get your credit score just a little bit higher, sometimes you can get yourself into sort of that excellent tier and now your interest rate is lower. And so for the next 15 or 30 years for a house or for the next five years for a car loan, you're paying a lower interest rate just because you took these steps early on to fix any mistakes or just to just give yourself a little boost. Love it. And even if you have a dramatically or even if you have a very bad score, you can make a dramatic improvement in like six months to a year if you just take the right steps, get current on everything, start paying them off and are smart and do some research ahead of time about what's going to have consequences and what's not uh, based on how you approach those those bad debts and that kind of stuff. I think it's exactly right. Get this right before you go get a loan and are saddled with the consequences. And if you have to wait the six months to buy a new car, like you can probably try to figure out a way to do that if you're going to save money on your monthly payments for that car just by waiting a little bit longer. Yep. Yeah. And so I want to share now annualcreditreport.com. The government has decided that you have access to it once a year for free. The credit reporting agencies, the three big ones, have to give you this for free. Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion will give you their credit report. And a company might report only to Equifax or only to Experian. So your credit report is going to be different from each one. And each one only has to give it to you one time a year for free. Most of the big companies will report to all three or at least two of them. One thing that I have seen recommended is that every four months you get a different report. So instead of getting all three in January, you get Experian in January. And then four months later, you get Equifax. And then four months after that. So you're still monitoring your credit all year long, but for free. Yeah. And another good tip is if you're looking to do this, go to creditkarma.com and Mint. Mint will give you, we talked about Mint earlier on the show. They'll all, you also have a credit, uh, soft credit report, uh, credit score on Mint. But Credit Karma is like a great resource that will kind of give you some information on the accounts outstanding, all that kind of stuff, and give you kind of some suggested ways to begin tackling that. So if you're worried about credit or want to improve that, that's probably a really good place to start alongside getting these uh, other reports. They'll give you a number. Sometimes they give you, most of the time they give you like a vantage score. They'll give you a credit score that isn't necessarily the official FICO, mm-hmm. but I view it sort of like a, like your temperature. If it goes up or down and you don't know, like drastically, it might be, and you didn't like open a new credit card, you didn't do anything, miss a payment. That might be an indication that something's going on and you might yep. want to dig a little deeper. 
Yeah. And I want to piggyback off of that. I was going to say they give you a number that isn't necessarily like the exact number, but you know, let's say they give you a number of 715. It isn't like your real number is going to be 400. The 715 might actually be 695 or 725. It'll be in a range. And, you know, one point doesn't make a big difference on your score. It's, you know, the big swings that really make a difference. Yeah, and they're just good resources for beginning to improve your your situation if you're starting out and maybe have a bad score and want to improve it. Okay, Jim, this was fabulous. This really exceeded all of my expectations. I knew you were awesome because you are the great uncle of blogging. Is that where we're going to officially call you the great uncle? Great uncle Jim. Before we get to the famous four. Is there anything else that you want to cover? No, I think we, we touched on it all. Yeah, I think it was a pretty good overview of uh, all of this. And I want to point out that while this was really awesome and I loved the keeping a time usage journal, that's a that's a new tip I've never heard before. I hear a lot of the same tips over and over again because this is what works. Keeping track of your spending isn't necessarily fun and, you know, like ripping off the bandaid, you have to really take a hard look at what you're doing. But if you want to make changes in your finances, you can't keep doing the same thing. So that is just a really, really awesome tip. The time usage journal blew my mind. That's fabulous. And now I'm going to go home and see how much time we're watching on TV. I do need the internet. I'm not going to be able to cut that, but I, I still did get a really good deal with that. So, okay. Now it's time for the famous four. These are the same five questions we ask all of our guests. We don't have a little jingle. The last for one it. is a command. <laughs> it's not a question. I'm sorry. These are the same four <laughs> questions and demand command that we ask everybody. Question number one: What is your favorite finance book? Favorite book is uh, was the Millionaire Next Door. When I read it, it really like opened my eyes because up until that point, I always thought millionaires were like rock stars and musicians. Like they were always famous and. And I think that book told me that actually the world is much bigger. And just because it doesn't get much press or anything, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Meaning the people that are diligently saving or they're smart about investing or there's just so many different ways to build wealth. And it's not always something that you're going to be able to see. And it's totally possible just through very boring principles if you're willing to stick with them. And I really enjoyed that book. And it, it's, it's like not hard to read. It's like all a bunch of stories and it just, it like unveiled a whole new world to me. And so it's a great perspective and it's got a bunch of great anecdotes. Like you just said, great stories. And it's also backed by real hard numbers that were really professionally and academically researched. Mm-hmm. So classic book there. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's an easy read. You can put it, you know, next to your bedside table or put it in the bathroom. If you want to talk about that. Um, <laughs> that's, that's where you put your jokes, your, your book of uh, puns and really? jokes right there. Yeah. Got of really terrible jokes. Millionaire next door. Yeah. And the millionaire next door. All right. What was your biggest money mistake? Money mistake was buying our first house. And it wasn't the fact that we bought the house. It was that we listened to all the experts and just did whatever they said. And it wasn't until much later. And this is, I bought it when I was 25. You're used to this idea of like you have teachers, you have bosses. You're like, they, they tell you this is how it works. And you go, okay, this is how it works. And there were just a lot of these little things that someone who was more in charge of the process would have pointed out and said, hey, wait a minute, I don't like this. And they're all like small things here and there. But when you add it all up, it was like there was something with the roof. So the home inspector looked at it 
the inside of the roof and it has like this fire retardant uh, chemical, whatever coating. And it, it's supposed to protect you from it going up in flames, but it'll activate when it activates, it deteriorates the plywood and it can activate when it gets super hot, which indicates there isn't enough airflow in the attic. Well, these are all things that if someone were paying, if I were paying more attention, I would know that this roof is in a little bit of trouble. The home inspector said, oh, it'll be fine, meaning it won't collapse, not as in the fire retardant treatment has been activated. And now the structural integrity of the roof is just a little bit weaker. Like no one's going to be walking on it. Like there's not going to be hail. It won't be that type of issue, but it's going to need to be replaced. He didn't say the it's going to need to be replaced in the next X years. Just things like that that they added up. I don't know what the total dollar amount was, but there were like all these these fees that I could have negotiated away that in some places they're like, oh, yeah, sure. We don't take away that. We can take away that document fee and this whatever. But the broader lesson was I'm in charge of my life. I'm in charge of my money. I can take their expert advice into consideration, but I shouldn't take it as gospel. And everyone learns that in life. And I just learned it maybe a little later than I would have hoped. No, I, I think this is the case for every single field in profession. Like, like one of the other ones that I think just to go off of this is a uh, medical, right? Like I hurt my foot and they misdiagnosed it in the ER. And then I looked it up. I had what I thought it was. And they were like, nope, it's not, this is, it's a different injury. And then finally, two months later that they finally correctly diagnosed it with the injury. What's called a Liz Frank injury. It's a rare condition, but like even in every field it's, here's the expert's opinion do your own research and make sure that you agree with it. And if you're not self-educated, you're handing, you're abdicating control and you're at the mercy of someone else's opinion. And they, you know, not saying you use a professional, but then you make your own decision. I love that. I don't know that I would self-diagnose medical, medical injuries. Oh, I'm not saying self-diagnose medical injuries. I'm saying (laughs) that it goes across like legal accounting, all of this stuff. Like if you don't understand your situation, you cannot find the correct specialist that can go go ahead and help it. Right. And hmm, maybe, maybe this is not where I want this to go. (laughs) An expert may not have all the information Mm -hmm. specifically, let's say your foot, like they may be able to visually see it, but if there's soft tissue and things like that, that they didn't do, you know, did an x-ray. So they only see the bone, their information that maybe you didn't convey There's things that they don't see in any expert field. It's not that they are negligent. It's that they just didn't make the right pick based on the information they had. But in the end, you are responsible. You are the last line of defense for anything that involves you. And I just didn't know that. I just thought, oh, these people are in charge. They tell me what to do and I do it. And then I turn around and I'm like, oh, my car now needs like four new tires and a belt and a new engine and whatever out of the mechanic. (laughs) Like, oh, okay, maybe they don't have my best interest all of the time. Yeah. Yeah, definitely do your own research on that. To clarify, we're not saying (laughs) self-diagnose your medical stuff. I'm just saying that I always take the expert opinion. I go and find the best professional I can to help me out with these types of situations. And then I make my own decision, just like Jim is saying he, he should have done with the, with the housing situation here. All right, Dr. Scott. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Moving on from Dr. Scott. Uh, Jim, what is your best piece of advice for people who are just starting out? Take risks and don't be afraid to mess up because like Mindy, what you said was the, what's the worst that could happen? You'll be working your job, whether it's for entrepreneurship or anything else. I think that One of the reasons why I was able to pursue sort of entrepreneurship when I was younger is because I took the risk when there wasn't a tremendous amount at stake. I think it'd be different if I were 38 right now, three kids, and I had a job that was supporting everything was good. And I said, hey, I want to go quit and do this blogging thing. 
that would be a far harder choice to make with that much on the line. And I think at 25, I mean, I was getting married. We were fine. We we're going to figure it out. You don't, there wasn't that much responsibility. So that's the time to take risks. So I would just say, go out, try to take risks when you can and don't, just don't be afraid. Just go for it. Yeah, that's excellent. Love it. All right. What's your favorite joke to tell at parties? Well, maybe, maybe for kid parties, what's the difference between a crocodile and an alligator? I don't know. One you'll see later and one you'll see after a while. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you laughed. You both laughed. I saw it. Perfect. It <laughs> we'll roll with it. Tell us where people can find out more about you. That's, that's the command. That's Tell that's, us where people yeah, can find yeah. you. I'd love it if they uh, come check me out at wallethacks.com. Uh, so I share strategies for getting ahead in life and financially. And just shoot me an email. Say hello. Love to chat and meet new people. Awesome. Great site. You have some great guest contributors on there. So it's been been fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> wow, Scott, did you contribute an article to Wallet Hacks? Oh, no, no. Maybe. Now, now he's set for life. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely go check out wallethacks.com. Uh, like we said, Jim is the great uncle of blogging and the personal finance space. So a lot of wisdom accumulated over a very long period of time. And thanks for all you do, Jim. Oh, thank you guys. This is a lot of fun. Yes. Thank you for the, thank you for your time today. I know you've got a big busy day of doing nothing. I mean, being an entrepreneur. Yeah. I'm going to scribble (laughs) down in my journal. (laughs) Make sure you put down an hour and a half for today. An hour and a half. Very well spent. Yeah, it was. Was that a good joke? That was a great joke. I don't normally laugh at them because they suck. Scott is the king of terrible jokes. (laughs) I love alligator jokes. So I think that was perfect. (laughs) You're bad. Yeah. (laughs) That one was fantastic. Okay, Jim, thank you so much. And we will talk to you soon. All right. Take care, guys. All right. That was Jim Wang from wallethacks.com. What a great story. What great tips. What do you think of the show today, Mindy? Oh my goodness. That whole thing about keeping a time journal, I said it in the show and I'm going to say it again. That was, I've never done that before. I've never even heard that tip before and you don't know what you don't know. And that didn't even occur to me to do, but I'm so doing it. And you know, it didn't come up while we were discussing it, but I think the waffles on Wednesday couple had an article about making your own spending journal. You could very easily make your own time journal using a Google document or a Google form where you just fill out, okay, this is what I did. And this is how much time I spent doing it. And that puts it all into a spreadsheet. So you can look back at it over the month and you can see, wow, I really do watch Netflix all the time. Or, Hey, I could probably never, ever watch Netflix again and be okay. And that's just a really great way to get your finances even more fine tuned. Yeah, I love it. And it's this is something that I practice regularly and have for years. And I found it to be to a great advantage for my pursuits that I've been going after and just keeping a track of my time. Not exactly in the same format as, as Jim. I just list my accomplishments out and schedule out what I want to do in six periods that I bucket throughout the day, early morning, late morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, late evening, and try to make progress or spend that time happily or help somebody else. And if I'm not doing one of those three things, I'm wasting time, which is just like wasting money, although worse. (laughs) I will say, and I think that you and my husband both fall into this category a little bit. It's okay to take time for yourself. Mm -hmm. It's okay to read a book or play a video game or, you know, whatever, take a few minutes for yourself. I don't necessarily think it's the best choice to play video games all day long, but if you've gone hardcore for a huge chunk of time and now you're 
you want to have a downtime and you choose a whole day to play video games, go nuts. That's it's not the best choice, you know, for your whole life, but it's okay to take time for yourself and accomplish nothing and do nothing. And that's not a waste of time. Some mental downtime is definitely necessary. I love my video games and I do not consider that a waste of time because I am happily <laughs> engaged while I do that. What is a waste of time, for example, is scrolling the news for an hour while not getting out of bed in the morning or, you know, being on Facebook and getting lost for an hour. Like those are the kinds of things that this will help cut back on and you can deploy that to more productive and happier use. Yeah, that is true. Okay, Scott, shall we get out of here today? Yeah, let's get out of here. Okay, from episode 47 of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast, this is Mindy Jensen and Scott Trench. And we're leaving. And small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month, four kitchens and bathrooms you can renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can afford? Which market and which deal is best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? These are all great questions, all to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devtha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. That's biggerpockets.com slash F-O-U-R. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.